If you have a Bible, if I can encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 19 to 21, we're going to try to, in kind of a bit of a broad overview way, cover 103 verses this morning. If you want to use the Bible in front of you, it's found on page 218 to page 221. Uh, now, today, we're actually going to complete our journey through Judges. We started back on August the 20th. And those of you that have been around Central for a while know I often can get very sentimental when it comes to the end of a message series. You know, there's books I've been looking at. I've spent time in the book, and so it gets hard for me to come to an end. And I'll be honest, on one hand, this series, I, I do have some sentimentality. There is some measure to which today is a little bit hard that we're coming to the end. Now, I think the reason why I often get sentimental, and this would be true in Judges, is because there's things that God has pointed out to me as we've gone through it in my own life. I mean, one of the things it's, it's made me realize is we've talked about how God wants us to live in freedom, but I can so easily get sidetracked from that. But at the same time, I think our study through Judges has reminded me, even though I get sidetracked from freedom, God keeps inviting us back. He keeps calling us back to live in freedom. I mean, that's huge. And in an odd way, through the, all the decline we saw of Israel repeatedly again and again and again, I think I've seen and I hope you've seen sort of glimpses of God's beauty, glimpses of God's love, and really his invitation to really live in freedom that he wants us for that. So on the one hand, I am sad that this is ending. But on the other hand, I'll be quite honest, I am really glad this series is done. <laughs> I mean, week after week of these accounts, these unfoldings of decline has been hard. And to kind of put the, I was going to say put the cherry on, the, on top of the Sunday, but this feels weird because it's really the bottom. We're about to look at what many scholars and commentators would tell us is the most disgusting and disturbing account in Scripture in which you're all thinking, wow, really glad I came today. <laughs> but that's really what it is. I mean, what we're looking at in these chapters is there is no, there's no redeeming characters. There is no noble acts. All it is is horrific, which made me go, how in all the world is this helpful to us? What benefit is there in these chapters for us to learn how to walk and follow Jesus to live in the freedom Jesus offers in a world that's so much trying to pull us away from that. How does this work? Well, because it is horrific and because it's odd, the sermon's going to have a little different sort of structure than we normally do. So what I'm going to do is sort of the first chunk, give you an overview of the story. We're not going to read all 103 verses, but kind of give you a broad overview of the story. And then what I want to do is try to answer the question, what do we do with this account? Okay, so let's jump into what could be called the premier horror story of the Bible. Okay, Judges 19, very much like Judges 17 and 18, offers us a window into some time during the time of the Judges. Okay, Judges 19.1 says this. In those days, there was no, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. 
So the story really starts simple, right? There's a Levite, and he has a concubine. Now, a concubine would be a, a second-level wife. She wouldn't be a full wife, and this is wrong on so many levels, but that's what he has. He has a concubine. He has a second wife. And at some point in their relationship, she is unfaithful to him. It's never defined how she is unfaithful, but in her unfaithfulness, she runs back home. Okay? Verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So the Levite, obviously, he wants her back. And so he invests some of his time and effort and energy. He's going to go and bring her back. And her father is just thrilled at the possibility of this. He is delighted. Now, maybe it's because of culture or maybe it's because simply of the joy of the father, but he just puts on this amazing spread of hospitality. I mean, maybe you think about sort of a Thanksgiving weekend and it's day after day after day of just bringing out the best stuff and just wanting him to be there. Well, when it gets to the fifth day, the Levite is like, we really have to go. And the father says, hey, but you can't go. It's really hot. Just have a little more. And so they get a late start on the day. They're not quite ready to leave and go. And so they're not going to be able to travel all the way back home in one night. They're going to have to overnight somewhere. And the Levite's like, you know what, we'll go, but there's no way we are going to spend the night in a city of a foreigner. We're not going to be in the foreign city. In essence, the closest place they could have stayed would have been Jerusalem, which at that time was called Jebesh. And they're like, we're not going there. So they go a little bit farther north to the city of Gibeah, which was part of Benjamin. And again, according to custom, they, they wait in the town square to see if somebody would offer them a place to stay. But nobody does. And it's getting even later and it's getting darker. And what do they do? And they notice this old farmer guy coming into town. And he's actually not of the Benjaminites. He's a transplant from Ephraim. And he offers them a room. And then he says these words to him. Judges chapter 19, verse 20. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. Now, if I could, like, control sound effects and all of that, there should have been an ominous tone right then, like ominous music. Because it's like there's obviously something here that's not good. But the problem is the Levite, he can't hear any of that music because he and the farmer go into the farmer's house and they start to party. And they're getting merry, it will say. And they're really indulging themselves and they're having a good time. And their party gets interrupted because all of a sudden some of the Gibeonites literally hurl themselves at the door. They didn't just knock on the door. They were throwing themselves at the door, and they also made it clear they wanted to rape the Levite. Now, let me be clear. That is bad. That is really bad. I said this was disgusting and degrading, and it's about to get worse. Verse 23 down to verse 25 of chapter 19. And the man of the house, or sorry, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them, the guys that were hurling themselves at the door, and said to them, No, my brothers. Do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, 
Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. When the men of Gibeah finally let her go, she'll actually crawl back to the door of the house, the door she was pushed out of. But before she can knock on the door, she collapses. Now, sometime during all of this, the Levite actually went to bed. Evidently, he slept well because he got up in the morning. He was ready to go. So he opens the door and sees her there. And she, he's like, hey, come on, get up. We got to go. And she doesn't respond. And so at least he's somewhat compassionate. And he picks her up and puts her on a donkey and they go home. Well, she was dead if that wasn't clear. And that's going to be more clear here in just a minute. And like I said, this is disgusting and degrading. Because when they get home... He cuts her into 12 pieces, and he sends her throughout Israel. Again, like I said, this is the most disgusting and degrading story in the Bible. His 12-part distribution seemed to cause the people of Israel, it'll say in Judges 20, to gather as one man at Mizpah. And at this gathering of 400,000 soldiers, in essence, the Levite tells a version of the story, but he kind of skips over the fact that he pushed his, his concubine out. He doesn't share that detail. He just tells you they were trying to do terrible things to us. And when this is heard, it causes a great uproar and a great concern. And it's like, look, this cannot be in Israel. We have got to deal with this city of Gibeah. Gibeah has to be repaid for the outrage they've committed. So you've got 11 tribes that are on board, and they're like, hey, let's go to Benjamin and get Benjamin on board. Well, the problem is Gibeah is part of Benjamin. And they're like, no, we're going to stand with Benjamin. Well, we're not going to go with you guys. And so all of a sudden, you had a dynamic of 11 tribes coming against one tribe. Benjamin was hugely outnumbered, but that didn't matter. They were going to defend themselves. During the first two days of the battle, Benjamin killed 40,000 fellow Jews. Now, there's some tension about there. There's some tension in, in Judges 20. You know, why would God allow this thing to be going on? Why is this happening? And if you read Judges 20, you look at verse 18 of Judges 20 and verse 23, and it, it kind of sounds like the nation that Benjamin engaged the nation or the nation engaged Benjamin because God told them to and now 40,000 of them are dead. But then you read a little bit more or you read back a little bit more and you get to Judges chapter 20 verse 9 and my granddaughter gets excited about that verse. But in Judges chapter 20 and verse 9 it says basically they drew lots as if whether they should go. So it's like was God using, were they understanding God leading them by drawing lots? I mean, what's going on? They were confused and we don't have great answers. What we do know what happens at this point is after losing 40,000 men, they kind of said time out. Maybe we need to ask God some questions. So verses 26 to 28 of Judges 20 say this. 
Then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Now, at some level, the people are a whole lot more serious about seeking God at this point. But there's some things that, in one sense, seem to be oddly missing. See, if you were to go back and you were to read Judges, or not Judges, but Joshua chapter 7, when Israel, the whole nation, went in to take the city of Ai, and they were devastated, and it was realized they had sinned, and there was issues, and a lot of men died, and so then they got serious with God. They went through a process, and it's the story of Achan and sin being confessed. Israel's not confessing any sin here, folks. There is no repenting going on here. There is a seriousness of, hey, the peace offering, the burnt offering, or some measure of expressing commitment or desire to know God, but they're not dealing with issues in their own lives. And you'll notice it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, but it doesn't say the tabernacle. Those are always meant to go together. It's as if the Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the tabernacle, as if it was a, a good luck charm. And there's almost a sense in which maybe they're not really valuing the holiness of God. So this isn't pristine. They aren't the ones, look at us, how good we are. There's some things going on here that aren't right. And yet, even in that context, God does tell them to go. But the thing is, the defeat of Benjamin wasn't just the defeat. It actually led to brutal destruction. Verse 47 and 48 of chapter 20, it says this. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, and notice this, and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Okay, it mentions 600 men. That's all that was left of the entire tribe of Benjamin. Everyone else who was part of the tribe of Benjamin had been killed. Well, that really created a significant problem. You see, when they gathered at Mitzvah, when the other tribes gathered at Mitzvah, they, they kind of made the people vow that no one could give their daughters to, the Benjam, to Benjamin. No one could, which meant with all the women and girls of Benjamin killed, that meant the tribe of Benjamin was about to disappear. And they're like, that's not good. They, they kind of got panicked. The other tribes kind of went into a panic mode. And then they were like, hang on, we didn't just make that one vow. We also made another vow. They said, hey, they made a vow that if a town didn't send anybody to this battle to fight against Benjamin, then everyone in that town should be put to death. Well, they did a quick search. Actually, it wasn't everyone in that town would to die. It would be the military men would die. So they made a quick search and they realized, you know what? Jabesh Gilead didn't send anybody. 
So the nation very quickly sent 12,000 of their bravest soldiers to go to Jabesh Gilead, and they were there with orders basically to kill everybody but the young virgins. And that's exactly what they did. Well, that got them 400 virgins, so now they had at least 400 women for the 600 men, but they still had a gap. They're like, now what do we do? We still have a gap. And they're like, hey, somebody said, guess what? Um, you know, there's this yearly feast at Shiloh, and, and the daughters of Shiloh would come out, and they'd be dancing and doing their thing, and it would all be a part of the feast. And so the rest of the nation directed the guys from Benjamin to hide in ambush at this party. And when the girls of Shiloh would go out dancing, the Benjaminites were to kidnap them and force them to be their wives. That, in essence, folks, is the story of Judges 19 to 21. I know at this point you were thinking, wow, I am so glad I came to church. What do we do with this? I mean, none of it's redeeming. None of it seems redemptive. How does this horrific account do anything in terms of equipping us or helping us to walk with Jesus, to walk in freedom in a world that's trying to get us to do just about everything else. Let me suggest to you, folks, I think there are three truths that this story surfaces, this account surfaces, that if we'd pay attention to, really could have huge bearing on our lives, really help us live in freedom. Truth number one would be this. The foundation of our morals and behavior is critical. Your foundation, the foundation of your behavior is critical. You know, these chapters, I think, spark an awful lot of questions. I mean, one of them could simply be, how could these terrible things happen? I mean, Judges chapter 19, verse 24. Behold. The farmer saying, behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, how is it that offering two women to be raped is okay, but not one man? I'm not trying to make us uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable. How could they make that choice? Or verse 25, but the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. As the dawn began to break, they let her go. What? How is it okay in the Levite's mind to send out a woman that presumably, at least in some sense, he loves and cares for, to send him out, send her out to a mob that has made it very clear they are not gathering for a sewing circle. They're going to rape her. How is that okay? Or verse 5 of chapter 20. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and so she is dead. How is it okay for the Levite to tell a partial truth that led to the virtual destruction of Benjamin and the abuse and the degrading of so many women? 
How is that okay? Now let me suggest Every decision that a person makes, the decision made by the different characters in this account, were all based on some foundation. There was something that they looked to, they turned to, to say, this is how I'm going to make the decision. I think Judges chapter 21, verse 25 might be their foundation when it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own was whatever is right in their eyes, whatever I think is right is right. Which makes me want to ask the question, what is our foundation? What is your foundation? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and by that I mean you've repented of your sins and you've trusted the Lord Jesus alone as your Savior, if that describes you, then I want you to understand this morning that our God has given us a new foundation, a foundation for our decisions, for our moral choices. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 might describe that foundation when it says this, who saved us, and the who there would be God the Father, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God offers his people, God offers followers of Christ the foundation of a holy calling, okay? And that foundation is really meant to get us to align with, to be focused on the work God wants to do. It's according to, notice, his purpose, because of his purpose and grace. He wants to do something. You say, what is God's purpose for our lives? Well, part of his purpose for our lives is to make us like the Lord Jesus in our characters, in our conduct, in our convictions. And part of that, that means then, is if we're going to understand what our foundation is, we need to understand what was Jesus' foundation. How did Jesus make his moral decisions and what governed his behavior? Well, maybe his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, answers that when it says this, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus' foundation was not what was right in his eyes, but what was right in his Father's eyes. It was God's will that consumed him. Folks, Judges 19 to 21, I think, can equip us to follow Jesus, help us to live in the freedom Jesus offers us. When you and I begin to realize this horrific account is really challenging us to ask the question, what is your foundation? Look what their foundation was and what it produced. What is your foundation? What are you basing your moral choices and decisions on? What is your foundation? Truth number two. Human standards will hurt people. You know what? These chapters, we've said it enough, but they're horrific. But do you notice who's in a large part maybe just a tiny bit player? And that's God. They're not really serious about him. They're not really serious about his moral decisions and foundations. And what we need to understand is 
When you and I ignore God and we ignore his values, people are going to get hurt in ways they never should. I want you to consider two values of God that I believe are ignored in these chapters that brought an enormous amount of hurt. First truth is this. Women and men are created in the image of God. Women and men are created in the image of God. That seems to be forgotten by the Levite. That seemed to be forgotten by the farmer. That certainly was forgotten by the mob and the tribes. They seem to forget that. Women were treated horribly in this account in ways they never should have been. Why? Because it was human standards, not God's standards. It wasn't recognizing that every person who breathes was created in the image of God. Whether you were conceived as a little boy or as a little girl, it doesn't matter. You were created in the image of God, and that matters. We need to understand that. Human standards can get really funky. God's standards are clear. A second value of God that I think gets ignored here is simply this, that God is a God of justice. A truth that weaves through all of Scripture is God is just. Okay, sin will be dealt with by God. The cross makes that abundantly clear. So does the impending promised return of Jesus. Sin will be dealt with. But sin being dealt with needs to be according to God's justice. And here they seem to forget it. I mean, the near destruction of the whole tribe, I think, shows they lost sight of God's justice. Look at verse 28 of chapter 20 again. There's kind of the words in parenthesis there. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? The Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Now, to be clear, God was inviting the nation to be a part of God's justice, okay, into your hand. God was saying, I want you to serve my purpose. But you know what? He wasn't calling them to destroy a tribe. Folks, our decisions, our human standards and decisions may not be right. One of the things we need to face is that we all can think, we have figured out this is how things should be. I guess you could say, we all have this default inside. We have what we think is right in our eyes. This is how it should be. But our eyes, what we think is right, may not align with what the Father says is right. And the truth is, because of that, because we don't align with the Father, what we do can hurt other people. Part of the challenge, I think, of Judges 19 to 21, which is really uncomfortable, is that you and I have a profound need to be transformed by Jesus. That's a part of what these are pointing out. Because, see, we can do things we think are right and yet do incredible damage. We need to be transformed by Jesus. From Romans chapter 12, verse 2, borrow words from there. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need the work of God in our lives. 
let me suggest to you two areas in particular where we may need this renewing in our lives. First, let me ask the question, are we thinking rightly about God? Is his will truly the foundation of our morals, truly the foundation of our behavior? When we think about God, do we recognize how much we truly need him? Do we realize if we're really thinking rightly about God that we are to be holy as he's holy? Like the standard of our life isn't, hey, I'm better than my neighbor or I'm doing okay or whatever. No, I should be concerned about am I being holy like God is holy? Am I thinking rightly about God? Second area where maybe we need renewing is are we thinking accurately about sin? You know what? Our culture per, seems to be okay and promotes a whole lot of things that are the exact opposite of God and God's word. And we need to wrestle with the question, what is influencing us the most? Is it our culture? Or is it God and his word? What is influencing us? Judges 19 to 21 challenges me to look in the mirror in that sense and to ask the question, where do my standards need to change so that I go from hurting people to being someone God can use to further his work in other people's lives? What are my standards? Because if they're just human standards, there's going to be a lot of hurt. Truth number three. God does redeeming work out of sin, tainted rubble. Now, to be technical, I don't know that this really shows up directly in these chapters. It's more of, as you continue to read Scripture, I think we see this. See, when you come to the end of Judges 19, you're thinking, wow, the tribe of Benjamin, they're going to be just a bit player at best. They're not going to be that important. And like Gibeah, Gibeah is wiped off the face of the, you know, of the earth. And Jabesh, Gilead, they're obviously like, they're gone too. Well, if you keep reading the Bible, you might find out that's not exactly true. See, if you read into 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 20, or 17 to 27, we meet the first king of Israel, or he's appointed the first king in that story, and his name is Saul. And guess which tribe he's from? Benjamin. And if you read verse 26 of that chapter, guess where he lives? Gibeah. And if you continue reading on into chapter 11, the first battle that King Saul leads the nation into is, guess what? To defend which city? Jabesh Gilead. God takes a lot of stuff that's sin-tainted and he brings amazing things out. Do you see that? And if you jump into the New Testament, you go into the book of Acts and you read about another Saul who we better know as Paul, the apostle who wrote virtually half of the books of the New Testament, 
And according to Paul's own words of Philippians 3, 5, the, Paul, the great missionary, is from the tribe of Benjamin. God redeemed and restored. God does amazing things out of our sin-tainted rubble. Out of the incredible bleakness of judges, I pray we will realize it's telling us there's hope. See, our lives can look, smell, and feel like Judges 19 to 21. And I'll be honest, it's not good. You don't want that in your life. It's not good. But that is never the whole story. God does redeeming work out of sin, tainted rubble. He takes our ash heap, and out of it, he brings incredible beauty. Let me try to finish the whole series by offering us four things that I pray will stick with us as God continues working in our lives. One, I pray would stick with us is that God will shine his beauty and love into our lives even when everything seems ugly. My prayer for you is that in whatever isn't going on in your life that doesn't, is not right, you will see God brings his beauty and love through it. Maybe it's a small sliver, but I pray we see it. Two, that we would realize that God is inviting us to live in his grace and mercy, not our sin. He doesn't want us there. He wants us in his grace and mercy. Three, that God is offering you freedom in Jesus. He truly wants you to know his freedom. Which makes me ask the question again, have you repented of your sins and have you trusted the Lord Jesus alone as your Savior? He's inviting you to freedom. Will you embrace it? And then four, that you and I would realize that God empowers us to walk in freedom by putting his Holy Spirit in our lives so that we will trust Jesus, we'll live in his freedom. God so much wants you to know freedom that he puts the Spirit in our lives. Folks, I pray. I pray that judges will lead us to the true king, and by his work in our lives, we will long for and we will do what is right in his eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you more than we can count. And God, I would pray and I would ask as much as this is a very bleak story, that through it, as you point us to you, your beauty and love would shine through. And as that shines through, we'd know there is grace. We'd know there is mercy. We'd know there is hope. And as we embrace the one who is the true ruler, the true judge, the true king, that we could truly live in all that you offer us. 
Father, there is a king. And as he touches us, you touch us. We can do what is right in your eyes so that your name is exalted, your name is glorified. And we will receive incredible good and we can literally go from here sharing your goodness. In the very precious name of the Savior we pray. Amen.